sewer systems get pretty overrun in Burlington. And when there's big rainstorms, they like flush out all this sewage into Lake Champlain, which is, you know, it's not one of the five great lakes, but it's a pretty good lake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Oh no, I missed it. Ah, dang. You know what that you know what that is, Bob? isn't that the song from Bubble Bobble? Is it Bubble Bobble or is it Baseball Simulator 3000? Oh, yeah, I think it's Baseball Simulator, although I feel like the Bubble Bobble song is similar in my head. Oh, man. Yeah. I. It's funny because when I, I just had that song stuck in my head and I was like, oh, that's the Bubble Bobble song. You thought so too? Isn't that insane? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, I think that's Baseball Simulator. Baseball Simulator. Super Baseball Simulator 1000 for the Super NES versus... Is it Bubble it? Bobble for the Ness. Yeah. Oh, those were some classics, huh? Yeah. I, I think the the Bubble Bobble one's similar. It's you could you could see the similarities. <laughs> oh yeah. A lot of D's and news. Yeah. That's how you start a podcast. Um what was the last video game that you played in earnest, Bob? In earnest. Like for, from a console? Yeah, like, I was at, I I was thinking about computer games, and I feel like the last computer game I played might have been like, you don't know Jack in like 2000 or something like that. But, I mean, I know you play cell phone games, but I'm curious what the last video game you really put some hours into. <laughs> put some hours, yeah. Um the last one I feel like is Rock Band for the Xbox. That feels like the most relevant last one back in 2008 and 2009. Okay. Yeah, I can get behind that. Wow. 2008? When did you, who'd you play that with? You. Sorry, I'm also ch- trying to chew a hamburger over here. <laughs> I uh, like the new tradition. You know what they say? Breaking out a sandwich for the podcast. Oh yeah, I didn't. I wasn't hiding it too well, and I realized that a hamburger is quite a mouthful. It's just uh, not quite the podcast in no. food. They say you're not even supposed to drink water while podcasting. Mm. I say, why not eat a hamburger? <laughs> All right, I got another question for you, but you got one for me, Bob. Yeah, as your my question is definitely not on the video games topic. Oh, mine is so far from video games. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, every fifteen episodes, we give our video game fans a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of hamburger to chew on. You know? Yeah. yeah oh yeah. <laughs> burger yeah. time! It's burger time, yep. baby. <laughs> Good reference. Um, well, I just wanted to hear about how your chickens are doing. Uh, yesterday, I looked at my weather report, and I get. 
bolder weather, weather reports and it said it was negative two. So I checked in with you and mom and you said you spent much of yesterday trying to protect your chickens from the, the cold. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Protect the flock. Well, it's interesting. I've actually never overwintered chickens. I've raised a bunch of chickens in my life and like we don't have we don't have like a bomb shelter type of coop um that's like super heavy duty but also Colorado's weather is pretty nice so yeah i mean anyways there's like a lot of different schools of thought on how to protect chickens in the cold you know and for the most part the two biggest things you got to do is you got to keep them dry and you got to keep them like uh, no wind chill. And really, like, you know, it ended up getting down to like maybe negative 13. It was approaching negative 20. I don't know if it made it all the way down there. But even in the morning when I woke up, it was at negative seven degrees, which is crazy. Um, and for all our European listeners, negative seven is kind of like um, 22 degrees Celsius. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the most ridiculous conversion, Celsius to Fahrenheit yeah. or Fahrenheit to Celsius. Yeah. I don't even know what that one is. Yeah. Maybe like yeah. negative 20 Celsius. Yeah. Right. Anyway, one of the big deals with chickens is you really want to keep their wattles and their crowns um, protected because that's the spot that can get really frostbitten. Um, so we ended up taking some salve they like a lot of websites said put some vaseline on there and we have salve so we put salve all over their little waddles all all over their tender spots and um that felt pretty good i also you know put in a few extra boards in the coop to like block off the back window and to block off the nesting boxes just to try and cramp them in a little bit so that they'd all be like on top of each other you Mm -hmm. know put a bunch of hay in and you know, we got snow yesterday as well. So I shoveled and um, the big question was, should we get a heat lamp or not? And apparently heat lamps cause a lot of fires. Um, It's like a pretty common thing. And I was like, Oh man, that'd be horrible to have like to just wake up to a bunch of burning chickens. Ugh, that'd be like the a worst nightmare situation. And anyways, the birds are fine and they seem like they're healthy and happy. So even down to negative 20, we kept, um, you know, got a ton of litter underneath them so that they could chill out, got all the drafts, made sure that they were nice and dry and salved them up. And we had, it doesn't seem like there's any issues today whatsoever. So that feels really nice. Like today they're... As normal as ever, just same type of activity as a typical day. Yeah, and it doesn't look like they got any frostbite. Yeah, and we actually have, we got three new birds this last week, which was pretty sweet. It's kind of nice because it's like uh, three little heaters in the coop, you know, a little bit extra Mm, heat inside. Yeah, but it's also pretty cool because a lot of birds, they, they, I didn't notice this at first, but we have, um, Americanas and another variety called a Wyandot, 
And those birds have really like small little crowns on the top of their head and they have like feathers over their wattles. So they are like super cold hardy breeds. Um, and you d- like, I was not worried about them at all. So that felt really cool to see, like, just like the little differences in these chickens. But they, all those breeds are like not the greatest at laying eggs. So it's like, ah, makes sense. They're not like heavy producers, but they have some other really cool attributes that, um, keep them protected. But yeah, it was, it was cool to see. Now, are you raising these chickens? More for their eggs or more for companionship? Um, I would say it started off just as an egg laying type of deal, but you know, we got them right when the pandemic hit last year, and it it was wild when we were like quarantining to have them at home to have something to watch. I'd say I've definitely become attached to them, and I'm not one that comes becomes attached to chickens too too quickly so they're they've been a great little pet for sure nice do you know that uh chickens and for that matter all birds are dinosaurs they're in the same like uh i don't know if it's family or yeah probably family as dinosaurs yeah i did know that yeah and i wonder too if i've heard a lot recently that like most dinosaurs actually had feathers Mm. Right. Yeah, that's that that seems possible. Yeah, I just like the idea of a Tyrannosaurus Rex with giant feathers like coming after me, you know? <laughs> but you know, if a if a Tyrannosaurus Rex was all the way up north in like Labrie, like the tar pits in France, that's pretty that could be pretty cold, yeah. you know? I I don't know. I don't imagine a giant lizard doing that well without feathers. Yeah, it's a good question. Have- yeah, what are the, what are our northerly lizards? You know, most of them are kind of more tropical. Yeah, and the northern lizards are all like tiny little dudes that like probably I don't know. We're clearly not um, botanists, and by botanists I mean herpetologists. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Every uh, yeah, thirty eight episodes we throw in something for our herpetologist fans. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so. Man, do you think we got any herpetologist fans out there? Probably. We probably do. Yeah. I'm sure we do. Who knows? Yep. And uh, um, I hope that fan gives us some, some fan feedback on how misguided <laughs> this conversation is. But yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, Anyways, couldn't I, think, be more I think you had a question for me before we get into the the hamburger. The hamburger and the hot dogs. Yeah, Bob. Speaking of meat. You have been a vegetarian a lot in your life, and you now currently call yourself a meat minimalist. I am just curious, what are three lessons learned? I'd say you've been a vegetarian for maybe you spent five years as a full-on veg head. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What are some lessons learned for for me and for you? You pro- Have you ever reflected on it even? I mean, I'm sure. Um, not in any systematic way, but... Yeah, I would reflect on it. The first lesson is that, and we already know this on this podcast, that sesame chicken is my downfall. We know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It will slay me, you know. Um, And on that note, like the best sesame chicken establishment in Santa Cruz 
is another victim of the pandemic. Unfortunately, we lost a Phoenix restaurant in Santa Cruz and that's a shame. Yeah. I'm, I'm sad to say. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is you, when you shift your diet, you get into all these other issues around um, food systems and um, questions of where does food come from and who has access to what kinds of foods. I don't think that going vegetarian is the only way to get into that, but you are, for me, those questions became more and more prominent. And uh, those are, yeah, there's really important ones, thinking about food systems and learning about food systems. And the third one is, I think, like militant veganism. I think it's like less common than the stereotypes. Like, I don't think there's a lot of militant vegans, but maybe I am missing them or maybe they're somewhere not around me. I definitely know a lot of vegans, but they generally are like, this is what I eat. And I, you know, I don't care what you eat, you know, like the vast majority of vegans and vegetarians are like that. And I think that breaks the sort of stereotype. So those are my three lessons, Dave, take them or leave them. Well, I'll just say I enjoyed it more with a hamburger in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I was a vegetarian and hamburgers were my downfall, especially living in California near that, those In-N-Out burgers mm. and burger dots. Yep. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know Phoenix uh, as a restaurant. I don't even know where that is. Oh, yeah. It's on, it used to be on Mission Street, Mission and Fair, kind of near mm. the New Leaf on the west side. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, have you guys lost a lot of places to the pandemic? Do you know? Like uh, Santa Cruz, I guess, more so than Seaside, but mostly because you probably don't know Seaside that well yet. I think so. It seems like more and more, you know, I think the Phoenix closing is a fair, fairly recent one. There's uh, our favorite cupcake place, Butter Cupcake, was severely injured but that was in the the fires they have like a a kitchen up up the one where the fires were last summer so that wasn't actually i don't think pandemic related but more fires related yeah i don't i don't totally know cuz i don't spend a huge amount of time in santa cruz these days but i suspect yeah like every month there's probably like one more fallen how about yourself yeah, I was expecting it to be worse. And I do know that, I don't know if that's true, but I just feel like it. Do, I haven't seen anything that's closed in, in town, at least. And I also felt like places bounced back pretty quick. And there was a lot of like, it's the same idea with like teaching, but a lot of like new innovations and like, um, like ways of doing business to make it work, you know, like I feel like most Asian restaurants instantly became takeout only or like delivery only. And um, then there's like a lot of like the swanky downtown restaurants that were like, we're going to buy like a piece of like, we're going to use the sidewalk to make like outdoor dining and we're going to like put you in a bubble and like you can do, 
you can basically be outside and do dining, you know? Um, which that seemed to happen pretty quick where all of a sudden everybody's eating outside, you know, and even in the winter time. Um, but yeah, I think like there's probably companies like DoorDash that, have, and I saw that like DoorDash was like sponsoring the Super Bowl, you know what oh, I mean? Wow. Like that, yeah. that company probably is going like through the roof, you yeah. know? And yeah, I also think that like the stimulus checks, like, the idea of like giving a tax break to millionaires, like they're never going to actually spend that money. Like that trickle down economics theory is like so flawed. But when you just give everybody, you know, $1,200 more or less, and it's just like that money is going to get spent. And I feel like a lot of that money was actually a pretty big stimulus. Mm. I have no idea, but like it feels like that money wasn't really saved so much as like I know a lot of people that like bought stuff with that money you know Mm -hmm. yeah which is like a good for local business so i don't know i i guess i felt like everything was going to shut down but then it it also you know americans nobody stayed indoors you know what i mean nobody actually quarantined yeah so it's like oh yeah more places were free to operate Hmm. anywho babo you know the viewers might not know this, but we just got upgraded to the the beta account on Zencaster, which is how we do our our talking to each yep. other. And last week was the first time that we were able to see each other during a podcast. This is our second time. And this is the first time Bob's ever seen me eat a hamburger yep. during a podcast. You've probably it's kind of nice. You've probably packed away like twenty or thirty by now, but I just haven't known it. <laughs> yeah, one one every other episode. Yep. Yeah, but I do like it. I do like the idea of being able to see you. Yeah, definitely. Those are just the, the sound studio, as it were. Well, speaking of sound studio, I'm I'm ready to get into it a little bit, Bob. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Did you want to introduce the theme, or would you like me to? I think I already did by making some weird noises and eating a hamburger during a podcast. Ah, it was thematic. It was a thematic, thematic burger, little, little uh, sesame seed uh, bun with a theme, theme lettuce. Nah, there was a joke there. I just missed it. No, yeah, I'll, I'll introduce it. Mm-hmm. We have been taunting the listening audience with the idea of talking about the disgusting and. Uh, the idea of how that relates to avoidance. And, you know, over the last weeks, we've been talking a lot about confrontation versus avoidance and how we can sort of find a harmony there. But also a lot of times this idea of like courage versus fear and how that plays into confrontation and getting after like confronting these hard things that you might not want to do, whether it's because of fear, because of difficulty or exhaustion or whatnot, and how a lot of times it turns out better for for us, which are um, was a little bit relevatory for me. And yeah, we just kind of wanted to think about like those things that you know we are like a little bit more predisposed to avoid. But that's about all I had to say, and I'll let you get into it first, Babo. Great, yeah. 
this is one that we have met- mentioned, and it's a little bit of a you know different topic than the season so far, but certainly I think pretty related. The there's certainly an avoidance of this topic. And the topic is the disgusting. Do 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 where we promised a two-parter on this one. We'll see if we give the listeners what they want. <laughs> Whether anyone wants a double on this, but we Oh yeah. I I think people are chopping yeah. chopping at the bit. The Yeah, the idea is simply that we will avoid things that we find disgusting and what is this concept of disgusting or gross it's something that feels very familiar and we just want to go into it and sort of just deconstruct what a dis- what is disgusting for us and like where how does that relate to avoidance in general so i thought i might start off with the story of becoming poop positive. And this is one that connects us with the, the mythical Nick Cantrick and him bringing this philosophy of life to um, our living in Santa Cruz 10 years ago. I think he, he was reading a book, mm. but I can't remember what that book is. And I. Oh, it's probably the Humanor. Humanor handbook, yeah, that's right? That's the one. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. It's humanor as in human manure. <sighs> yeah. This idea that, you know, a more sustainable way of living is actually hum- using human waste and there's a process of turning it into man- manure. It's, uh, I think, a little bit more complicated than, you know, cow manure. It might take a little bit longer, but it's it's workable. And so that question brings up, you know, confronting poop and like our own waste and, you know, sort of dealing with it, you know, like in the in the humanure and just being closer to it conceptually as well. So that idea of being poop positive. Or, you know, taking, because it's pretty common that people are disgusted by poop. And maybe part of that is because the culture is poop negative. And we are sort of, yeah, it's just very much in TV shows and everything that poop is absolutely disgusting. But does it have to be? It's coming out of a human body. I. I always love the idea of like, you know, before you poop, poop, you, you, you are your poop, right? Like, how are you? This is a part of your body. You're as much your poop as, you know, the water in your other systems or, you know, so I, I always embrace that, that idea. And I don't know. I don't know that I was ever that disgusted by poop. and. You know, with our dad having Parkinson's disease, part of that was like um, helping him with his bowel movements growing up. And, you know, so I felt like maybe we were a little desensitized 
But I do think just talking with Nick and this concept, just talking through these concepts, I feel like I, I have very little disgust around poop. I think it's like even gone down, you know, is what I'm trying to say, just through a criti- more critical analysis. And um, so p- potentially these things, you know, I, I do think there's like probably like a biological component where we're probably, you know, the smell is what it is. And so it's very off-putting, but I, I, I just also think there's a socially constructed component to it all where, because we hear these narratives growing up, um, we, we can sort of roll those layers back and, and practice not being disgusted if we want to. And so I think using that framework, we could like think about other things that we're disgusted by and maybe not be disgusted by them. That's my story, Dave. Yeah, I like that idea. That's great. I have a bunch that I want to add on to that. I used to live on a farm and we use what are called composting toilets. And yeah, the process is a little bit more complicated. We humans have a really complex gut, right? Um, We have like a ton of microorganisms. And part of that is because we're omnivores and our diet is super diverse. And it's, it's actually a really efficient gut more or less. Um, But there are like a lot of parasitic stuff that happens in, uh, in poop so that we basically the process that needs to happen with in a composting toilet is you just need extra time to make sure that, I mean, you don't actually need extra time, but if you want to use it as manure, you need time to let it cure and to let it, um, the parasitic like and bacteria strains that are in our own poop before you like try and grow food with it. But like, I mean, it's the idea that, that really strikes me like this. I I know it's not a bumper. It's not a Dan Cantrick bumper sticker, but the idea of like, where is a way, you know? And you know, when you say like, Oh yeah, I got to throw, Hey, can you throw this away for me? Or like, put this in, you know, just like take it away from here. Right. And that idea of like, where, where, what does a way mean? And for like a sewer system, it can mean a lot of different things. Like the majority of sewer systems tend to drain into the ocean or to lakes. Um, And this is like globally speaking. And like, I know in Vermont, they're the, Sewer systems get pretty overrun in Burlington. And when there's big rainstorms, they like flush out all this sewage into Lake Champlain, which is, you know, it's not one of the five great lakes, but it's a pretty good lake. And it like just creates these big blue green algae blooms that happen on the lake. And it makes the lake incredibly inhospitable to go into because this blue green algae is like, um, it's like parasitic and it can, you know, eat, eat away at your skin and you're not even allowed to let your dogs go in there. So it's like this idea of like, we're poisoning our lake with our own sewage because we're not managing it properly. And I feel like there's some lessons learned there. Maybe 
like this idea of taking a, a problem like pollution and being able to flip that on its head and like increasing the water quality like exponentially and at the same time increasing the fertility of our soil exponentially just by like reimagining like the systems that w- that are in place i feel like you could extrapolate that into like well, think of i mean think of the prison system right and if you like how we could reimagine the prison system to not only cuz like we as a society like I would say we think of prisons as prisoners as like disgusting people, right? They're like are off. They're like we put them away. We put them. We do we say that? Is that like an expression? Put them behind bars. Throw, like put them. We take them away out of society, right? Yeah. And I f- I feel like when you when you do that, you're creating this in in a way that's like really not healthy for them, for the system and for our society. Right. And like, I feel like if we can reimagine the systems that are in place, we can really create a more beneficial society, not only for us, but for the, you know, for the people that are involved. And yeah, I had a few other points, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. Oh, I mean, you know what? I might forget it. So I got to say this. Um, the Single Acorn pos- the single acorn Podcast, our sister podcast, run by Teague O'Connor and Glenn Edder out of Burlington, Vermont. They did a whole season on poop. They did six episodes on poop and in the animal world. And it's it's just a really fascinating thing. Like animals that use poop as for like houses, animals that eat other animals poop animals that eat their own poop um but there's you know it's definitely a kind of a gross disgusting um idea but i feel like we are so single-minded and like we're raised so single-minded that i feel like broadening that horizon can really open up our eyes in a lot of good ways some good stuff yeah absolutely i like that idea of the away and Society uses that idea of the away to sort of cast a spell on people to just not think about the away and whatever is going there, whether it's whatever it is, whether it's our waste or whether it's animals or people. Um, because I do think it there's a an analog there between the thinking, uh, like. When we like deal with the things that we feel like are disgusting. Um, and yeah, like maybe it's interesting. It's like people do feel like prisoners are disgusting, but it's like kind of shines a light on people's own prejudices are the thing that's disgusting. Not, not the. Mm-hmm actual people it's the actual like the people's belief systems um and that's another type of disgusting that i have like less compassion for like people's prejudices around other people and animals so that's interesting but i think we might come back to that idea in the in group out group episode the other place where this type of thinking 
seeps into our society is on the front end of food as well with food production, especially around meat, getting back to the meat conversation, the ways in which meat is like prepared, you know, animals are killed and prepared. If people had to deal with that as well, that would change their their thinking and practices. And so I think we're and, and people say that's pretty disgusting. Like, no, I couldn't deal with that like that. I don't even want to think about that. That's that's disgusting the way that animals are slaughtered. Um, so pushing or, you know, encouraging society to deal with the things that we think are disgusting seems like a, an important thing um, to be really critical of what we find disgusting and where those feelings come from, which goes back to my premise that there certainly could be like inborn tendencies around certain things, but I do think that systems and society manipulate those things and, you know, use them in certain ways and that we are not really aware of because these things are happening when we're young and, you know, set us up in certain ways. But again, I do think with some critical analysis and practice, there's like ways to move it back, you know, or like become less and less disgusted. Um, because I, I really do feel that way. Like I feel like fine around poop and, um, yeah, I just like, I feel like I could be a nurse at least in that, in that sense, you know? Um, but I, I don't think I was always quite like that. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I was always very fearful of like animal death and yeah, I found it to be, I don't know if I found it to be disgusting, but I found it to be like very depressing and sad. And it is in a lot of ways, but I, you know, I ended up like sort of running this like little mobile slaughterhouse for, um, one of my jobs for a little bit. I was doing a lot of poultry processing and, you know, I was on the kill floor and I found the process to be like a very spiritual process in a lot of ways and really hard and very like moving emotionally. Um, I felt like, and that's why I felt it to be a little bit spiritual because I felt like to, to do the slaughtering, it was, you either have to detach from the, your emotions or you have to, to confront these emotions. And in the end, what I found to be the most disgusting part of the whole thing was even going a step farther back was this idea of the the chickens that were being raised were this breed of chickens that's called um, Cornish cross or like they're also known as white birds or just cross chickens. And they're like a really, they're like 90 going way back 99% of chicken that's eaten in the U S like the vast, vast majority is this breed of chicken, including any sesame chicken from Phoenix is this breed of chicken. And it's a really sad breed. They are the least chickeny breed. They, you know, they start off like little normal chicks, but after like three or four weeks, they'll 
you know, they start growing their feathers kind of weird. And, you know, at week four, they end up like kind of just like laying down most of their day and not like running around. And they basically end up, you know, you have to move them every day because they'll end up just kind of sitting right next to the feeder and just pooping everywhere. And they'll just be like living in their poop. And they sit down, so all their feathers end up like going bad. And because they never move around, these chickens start dying of heart attacks after about nine weeks. So you have to process these chickens at like the eight or nine week mark. And it's like, it, that to me is just like a really sad, I don't know, it kind of ties everything together right there, right? You, you got your poop, mm. living in your poop. You got these, this like really sad bird that I don't want to call the bird sad, but I feel like the process is really sad. It's like this systematic process where it feels like we've taken, we've done so much crossbreeding to get this bird that will put on weight at a two to one ratio, which is like unheard of for any animal breed to get a two to one ratio. It's like so high. And, you know, cause most animals are sitting around 10 to one for like how much feed to how much meat you get. Oh, anyway. Um, yeah, I don't quite know what I was getting after here, but I do feel like I, my goal was to sort of confront what it meant to, to see the animals from life to death. And yeah, it's a hard process, but I feel like I definitely learned a lot of lessons along the way. And a lot of those lessons come to like sort of trying to take back control of our food and our food system. There's a, you mentioned like that you weren't really disgusted by the slaughter in the first place. It was more the sadness. And that's an interesting thing too, that, um, I think it's like, a yeah, that just touches on a different thing that uh, people avoid at times, like uh, just the sadness and um, doing things that might push one to, towards sadness. And so I think that's a d- different episode entirely, but I appreciated that you mentioned that in, in this. And um, yeah, I don't know if like... Uh, you know, that should, that should go away. Like, I think the sadness is a natural or a good response to death, you know? Um, so I appreciate hearing that part of it and don't know if I have anywhere to go with that, but yep. Yeah. Maybe I'll tie it back to another thing that we both enjoy quite a bit which is a youtube channel called foolish baseball or baseball bits and i he just came out with an episode this week he comes out with an episode about once a month and they're quite good he uses 8-bit music as we tried to to start our podcast off today in all of and is it's very thematic with like a old school video game and he analyzes baseball using that that lens and i don't know if we've ever talked about foolish baseball in this show i don't think so but i do like the episode he came out with i didn't quite finish it but he looked at the he looked at major league baseball as a whole as like a system right and he tried to reimagine 
like all the bad parts because there's flaws in any system, anything that's been around for over a hundred years, there's going to be flaws, right? Especially, and these things get reimagined all the time, but like there hasn't been like dramatic changes because especially in a thing like baseball, it becomes institutionalized and it's like the pitcher's mound has to be 60, 60 60.3 feet away from the batter's box, you know? It's like, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it will always be. You can't reimagine that. And I feel like I was kind of struck with this idea of like how much we don't want change to happen, but how much we need to like confront these systematic changes and do this process of like, like you're saying with confronting like changing your mind frame around poop positivism and confronting what it means to to be disgusted by poop you were able to like you and others with you have like gone down this path of like reimagining what like the human waste system can look like and i feel like it's really important for us to do to actually have take the next step and to reimagine like because i know it's been done but like let's really do it and like reimagine what the prison industrial complex could look like in a much more just way, you know, and like keep talking about that and think about like, if we confront it, then we need to take the next step and be like, and I think that's kind of what anarchism is in a lot of ways, right? Like Marxism, like looks at capitalism and deconstructs it and anarchism, like is trying to like, look at another way being possible and like reimagining that, that other way. Absolutely. Yeah. That idea of another world is possible as being a strong grounding force for anarchism. And just cause it's easy to forget about that. So, yeah. I like that a lot, Dave, that this collective confronting is really important and we cannot let something like disgust hold us back from that and yeah and that way we when we confront anything we could like ask ourselves why are we avoiding it and i think this season we're starting to see like there's many reasons why something gets avoided avoided and i think for me with disgustingness it's it that one I I don't think that's a good reason for me. I think that is like when something when I'm avoiding something because it's disgusting, I want to look more into that and like why why am I feeling like this thing is disgusting and go further with it. Um yeah, and like see, yeah, like you said, maybe it's like one part disgusting and one part sadness, but it's good to know that as well, even if it's like we're avoiding things for multiple reasons. Yeah, or it could be like one part biological. Like Sabrosa had a great Instagram post this week about roadkill and sort of like why it's important to try and remove roadkill from roads. Like what it, like what it can, like it was just like four things, you know, like number one, it's respectful for the animals. Number two, it will avoid other like predation or not predation, but like, um, what are the people called? Like vultures. Come, oh, yeah, scavengers. scavengers coming and then cause more car accidents and then um yeah the idea too they said that you know sometimes roadkill 
is not actually dead. Like a lot of times animals might be stunned and like getting them off the road can be a way of actually saving them. Oh God. I Oh, oh yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Last one. I just like, I can't remember what the last one was. Let's just say it was three things. I just have to, I'll try to tell the story quick. I was debating whether or not to tell the story, but uh, we're driving b- back home last night and I, uh, it's, you know, 25 mile an hour road. See like this big thing or like, I thought it was a bag that was, but it was like pretty big. So I like started like looking at it more and I like start slowing down and like, Oh my God, that's an animal. And I like stopped and I could tell pretty quick it was a possum and it was like definitely still moving and, um, definitely bleeding. So we stopped and I did have a moment of like, shit, like, like I didn't want to leave it, but I also just didn't know what to do. I just, I didn't know how to confront the situation. Um, but I was with my partner and, and she went up to it and, you know, examined how, how badly it was hurt. And, um, yeah, it was, it was bleeding pretty good. And, but it was moving around. We, unfortunately, like we didn't, like I called animal control and no answer. So I had, I felt like I had to call 911. So I did. And the dispatcher was good in, in the sense she gave me the number for SPCA, which was eventually really helpful. Um, they encouraged like trying to get the um the possum in a box and move it um and after a while they came out and took the possum and the thing was like no one else wanted to stop like these cars would come in like blazing fast and they looked really pissed that we were like flagging them off to like please go around while this possum was still in the road um and yeah, that's like I, I, just a huge place of like avoidance that people just don't seem to care about roadkill and um, or I, what I should say is don't seem to care about animals on the road. And I'm sorry to say like uh, they had to like euthanize that possum, but the I, I talked with the guy today and he said like thank you so much for like calling us. Um, but yeah. It's a rough story to end this with, but I felt like I had to had to tell it because I had definitely had a moment of like, should we confront this? Um, but just felt very compelled to do so. And partially because I was with my partner and we like to have someone to confront a situation that's hard to do like you know, to do it together, I think is helpful. I will say to end on a hopeful note, I feel like possums are kind of like labeled as disgusting creatures right they are they carry that with them and it's pretty sad because first of all possums they possums and probably raccoons are like the two animals that get late labeled as like having rabies and possums because they are they have like a super low um what's it called body temperature like rabies they're probably the anim- the mammal that has like the most um like the hardest time for to actually con- contract rabies so like the f- like possums almost never ever have rabies and i feel like that's like such a common labeling for possums and man they might not even be mammals they might be marsupials yeah they are they might be that's like, right yep yeah um 
Right. Which is, I mean, it's just like so wild that there's like one marsupial in North America and it's the possum, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, even before this, I really liked possums. And so I was heartbroken to, to see this possum. Um, I, but I, yeah, I did have that idea of like, does this possum have rabies? That, that did flash in my head. It wasn't going to s- stop me, but yeah, you're right. I did think that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of weird looking dudes, possums, but, um, and I sort of understand, but yeah, I feel like possums are pretty cool too. So that's, that's nice. Well, Bob, shall we move on? Yeah. Let me call it a day. Let me sing you in Dave. Okay. (laughs) Karl Marx in the sky. George Orwell can fly twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. Dystopia rainbow. Not bad, Bob. Not bloody bad. It's hard to just um, put as much dystopian stuff in there as you can. Well, I'm going to talk about another um, book that has been mentioned on the show, but I really want to like just hammer it home. There's a author that I am currently reading. Her name is N.K. Jemison, and she is one of the few like black women authors in fantasy. And I, I think in a lot of ways, she's probably, I, I don't know this, but I bet she's like the roots that Octavia Butler laid down have like, um, created some, some like growth afterwards. You know what I mean? And I think that's pretty cool. And I am currently reading, um, one of N.K. Jemison's books. She's written a few trilogies, and I'm reading the the book, the first of the trilogy, called The Earth Shakers. Um, and it is the book is called The Fifth Element. Nope, it's called The Fifth Season. Boy, I better get that one right, you know. And it's definitely like dystopians typically take place in a the future like the future of our current planet that we're living on. And this is not, not that. So that's why this falls in the world of fantasy. But I feel like there's a lot of crossover between fantasy and dystopia. And this one in particular, some of the big topics that she hits on are enslavement and um, sort of global collapse. Those are two of the big themes that come up in this. And I feel like one of the cooler parts, you know, as all a lot of fantasy novels do, they sort of uh, pick a bunch of characters to tell the story from. And one of the stories is told in the second person, which I always enjoy it. Like totally when you're reading the character of you and you are like a, a mom of this young child who's been stolen away. And I feel like, it's just a nice perspective and it just kind of like puts you in a totally different world. And whenever I'm reading that section, I'm like, Whoa, this is like not how books are written. And it like, it really like puts me in my body and takes my body puts it in hers. And it's like, this is pretty sweet. It's a sweet way to read literature. And yeah, I guess I'll just give a quick little overview. Like on this world, the, the earth is like, has all these like huge 
earthquakes that happen and there was an earth every once in a while in it's called the fifth season i think that's what i said anyway in the fifth season what happens is the earth shakes so violently it like sort of cracks continents because the earth is so violent and people like die and like volcanoes happen and eruptions and earthquakes that are so dramatic and it's like the earth the idea is like the earth is so mad at us but there are these people that can like control they can like talk to the earth and they can like control earthquakes and it's like a sort of like the magic system of being able to control earthquakes and trembling and volcanoes and like just being able to talk with the world and you can like you know the fantasy aspect is you can like level up and become like better at it and like become like a grandmaster what's called a 10 10 ring um you know raga is what they are and but like the interesting part is that the ragas are controlled by these people that are called guardians and they like all these ragas are enslaved um by the guardians and yeah so it's like a a book of liberation in a lot of ways and I don't know. It's just a really good book. And I also think that, um, yeah, anyone that read it would get something out of it. So I'm excited to get to the end this week of the fifth season. Love it, Dave. Yeah. That sounds like a lot going on and sounds like, yeah, I think you laid that out. Well, I I sang about NK Jameson two times ago in the old dystopian rainbow song. So I'm glad you you did. There you go. Glad you brought her back. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'd love to get to that book. Nice work, Dave. So, coordinates? Sign off? Sign off. Dave Peachtree, Gmail, thrivingdystopia.com. BMaze19 on Twitter and thriving underscore in underscore dystopia on the Insta. Wow. Well done. Professional at this point. Well, Dave, happy week of confronting ahead and talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Bob. Love you, Dave. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is Bashful by Ketza. See you next week. See you next week.